Well, I don't know how uh, much experience you uh, have with the Bible, but um, there are probably some people that you know from the Bible, whether you know much about the Bible or not, like Moses or David. There are two major figures. Maybe you've heard of some second-tier kinds of people, like Aaron or Abraham, maybe Samson or Solomon. And these are uh, people who uh, interact with God and God used them in the world. And we hear about them in Sunday school. We hear about them sometimes reading maybe a kid's Bible story book, depending on your background. I don't know how you encountered them, but my guess is if you've heard of them, you've heard of them uh, so that you could imitate them. So you probably heard like the Bible story and then the message of the Bible story was like this, be like David or be patient like Job or have faith like Abraham or be a leader like Moses or strong like Samson or fill in the blank. That's typically how we read, especially the Old Testament is how can I be like the people I'm reading about? And we've been taught to look for the best in our spiritual ancestors and then to imitate them. But the reality is that is not the whole story. I think it's natural for us to identify with people who are pictures of strength or power or success when in fact the Bible primarily identifies with weakness. The invitation of Jesus, after all, is to come, not if you're strong and have it all together, but come if you are weary and burdened. The blessing that Jesus offers in His kingdom is not for those who are rich or strong, but for those who are poor in spirit or for those who, are more, who mourn, or those who are meek. And so we're going to see that a version of that same invitation here in Psalm 106. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you're not there yet, to Psalm 106. And the invitation that we have to come to the Lord is important because this kind of invitation requires humility. In fact, if you're going to come and you're going to read what we're going to read in just a moment, you're going to know that you're close to the center of what you ought to believe if it requires that you are humble. If you can read it and be proud of yourself, if you can read it and feel great about yourself, There might be a little more work to do there. Because there is a bravado in much of American Christianity that we like and even love, I think, that misses the necessity of Jesus as our Savior. I mean, I heard a message just yesterday at a wedding. It quoted four movies. And to give you a flavor of the movie quotations, one of them was from Braveheart, which is always a go-get-em sort of a 
uh, reference. And the message was about stepping up and fighting for what God had already provided for you. The preacher concluded to the couple with, uh, by saying, and you can do it. And they were fired up about it. I was reminded, though, of a quote that I used in a funeral a few weeks ago that said, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away. Because it works only for losers. And no one wants to stand in that line. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away. And what we're going to read today is going to be cross-current with the stream of Christianity many of us are familiar with. It's going to get us in line, I hope, with the humility of Jesus and enable us to respond to the invitation that He gives us to come, to come and be welcome apart from your performance. Because in Psalm 106, we see that God will certainly save His people because of His covenant love, not because of their good works. He will save us not because we deserve to be saved, but because He is faithful. So let's look at uh, verse 1 and see the Lord is mighty and He will certainly save. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This was just read. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of His praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. And so this, and I'm going to stop and point out, this psalm is written so that you and I will praise the Lord. The point of it is to encourage us to praise the Lord. That's how it starts. Praise the Lord, I'll give thanks to Him. And as we keep reading, you're going to realize that it's really hard to praise the Lord and be proud of yourself at the same time. And that, in summary, is what the psalm is about. The first three verses introduce us to the idea that we're to praise the Lord, the rest of the psalm introduces us to the fact that we have a problem. And that problem will keep us away from God and makes us not deserve His grace and mercy. And so in verse 4, he begins a prayer. And it's a prayer of confession. And when he confesses his sin and the sins of his father, he's identifying himself Not with people who have their act together, but with people, in fact, who are sinful and don't even deserve the mercy of God. And he places himself in continuity with them rather than distancing himself from their problems, which is probably what I would try and do. Verse 4 begins his prayer. The first is introduction, then verse 4 begins a prayer. Remember me, O Lord... When you show favor to your people, help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice 
in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. And so let, let me just interrupt the prayer here to point out uh, that um, he is certain that God will save his people. Did you, did you notice that? In verse 3, when you show favor to your people, help me, help me when you save them. And so there's two statements that are very strong that in fact he believes that God will be good to his promise, that God will keep his uh, covenant with his people. And so when he keeps his covenant with his people, then he says, please include me. The only thing left then when you recognize God is faithful is to say, then God include me when you're faithful to your people. And so that's the way that he sees um, God's faithfulness, that he will certainly save his people. So please include me. Now again, felt I needed to stop and point that out, that God will certainly save, because very soon you're going to see these people are not the kinds of people you would expect God to save. In fact, you're going to wonder, why on earth would God save these people? So, verse 6, still part of his prayer, he says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity and done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And so, this is his corporate confession. He says, verse 6, we and our fathers have sinned. He includes both those around him and those before him. The people of God have rebelled and brought disgrace on the name of God and the reputation of God. And they did this really right out the gate, didn't they? When he delivered them from Egypt, they got to the Red Sea, and then they rebelled. Just immediately, hours, really, after the great deliverance of God, they rebelled. And so he confesses his sin and their sin. And the goal of this psalm is praise. The goal of the psalm is to get us to recognize that God is a great Savior, and he does that by confessing sin. Praise is not diminished by confessing sin, but rather it's helped by confessing sin. This is why every week when we gather for worship, there is a point in our service like there was this morning when we pause and just say, we have to acknowledge our sin. We want to acknowledge the fact that our access to God, our relationship with God, is not based on the fact that we have it all together. It's based on the fact that God is faithful to His promises. And so even acknowledging that every week like we do forces us to think of the cross. It draws us back to the cross to remind us that if we confess, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And so we praise Him for His forgiveness, not for our uh, strength and our good behavior. 
not because we deserve His favor. And so it forces us to the cross, but the reality is to even pray a prayer in the Old Testament like this. So we're hundreds of years before Jesus came when this psalm was written. And he pleads for forgiveness. He confesses his sin. And what hope is there that God would forgive sin in the Old Testament? After all, that was before Jesus. That was before the cross. That was before... uh, I mean, how would they accept any forgiveness from God? Well, they would do it really the same way that we would do it, for the same reasons. In Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23 through 26, it tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, the message is that people are forgiven when they're sinners by grace because Jesus died and paid the penalty for their sin. So, God holds nothing else against them because everything He held against them was uh, put on the cross and Jesus paid for all of it. But then it tells us, this is what happens in the Old Testament. Whom, um, let's see, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance or His patience, He passed over the former sins which is exactly what the psalmist asked him to do. Please look, look, you know, overlook our sins. And he did that because those sins, not just my sins, not just yesterday's sins, um, but sins before the cross even, were essentially accumulated and were uh, judged on the cross of Christ, just like my sins are so that God might be just in the fact that He punished sin and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the way that salvation works now. It's the way that salvation worked then. And so he prays and confesses his sin, trusting that God will forgive his sin. And so really, we're just getting started with the litany of uh, offenses of the people of God here. And so I just want to tell you the failure of our fathers, the failure of the people of God should not surprise us. It does surprise us because we went to Sunday school and were told, be like David, be like Moses. But instead, here is the story. Okay? I'm going to read to you uh, really the rest of this psalm because. I don't know any other way for it just to land on you and for you to have the, I don't know, the tummy ache that he expected you to have when all these rotten things, when these people did all these rotten things. So I'm going to read it to you and just you follow along and all the time I want you to be thinking, do these people deserve grace? Do these people deserve for God to treat them well? And you can read it and ask that question and... um, I think the answer will be pretty easy if we do a quiz at the end. Verse 8. 
says, yet, they just had rebelled at the, at the brink of uh, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, verse 8, and that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, it became dry, and led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from um, the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and sang his praise. Now that just, I just have to say that that's a little too late, right? It, you know, you've heard that seeing is believing. That's kind of, that's the way they rolled. They waited. Okay, let's get all the way through the Red Sea, turn around and watch it go over the enemies. Oh, now I believe. That's too late. That's not really what we mean when we say believe. When we say believe, we mean God promised to, to do it. God promised to save you and forgive you. Believe that ahead of time, not after. But that's what they did. They believed it after they saw it. In salvation, God's salvation came immediately in response to their very first rebellion. Pick it up in verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. And when the men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered up the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company and flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. The wondrous works in the land of Ham, the awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And so here, very clear, they had forgotten I mean, how do you forget something that happened just the other day? You almost have to work at forgetting, and they did. And so they made the golden calf, and God's salvation came to them in response to their very worst, most obvious rebellion. And so then, verse 24, they despised the pleasant land. Having no faith in His promise, they murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, He raised His hand and swore to them that He would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. A plague broke out among them then Phineas stood up and intervened, and a plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation, forever. So they offered sacrifices to the dead. They made the golden calf. 
They forgot his promise. They went into the land, didn't do what he said. You think almost everything he asked of them, they did the opposite. And God's salvation came to them when they uh, immediately at the Red Sea, when they first rebelled after their worst rebellion with the golden calf, his salvation came. Now his salvation comes in response to their persistent idolatry and treachery. And then verse 32, they angered him at the waters of Meribah. It went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of the, their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And with the land, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. When the anger of the Lord is kindled against His people, He abhorred His heritage and gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them would rule over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought in subjection under their power. Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And now you see God's salvation comes to them after generations of sin. Now, I mean, just, I don't know how all that struck you, but there are some things that are bad, and then there are things that are worse, and then there are things that they did. They offered their sons and daughters to demons, somehow as God's people. This is the confession of their sin that he's making in this prayer. And you're going to say, wow, God's going to save them, right? Because they're doing so well. Be like them. Yeah, don't be like them. Verse 44, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. And you see right there, right there in those two verses, you see what it is that made God rescue them. Why did God serve Save them? Why did he continually, after offense, after offense, after offense, why did he still welcome them back? They were, they were the prodigal son who ran away and ran and ran and ran, and he welcomed them back anyway. Why? Look at verse 44 and 45. Because he remembered his covenant. They had forgotten everything, hadn't they? They had forgotten what he had done. They had forgotten his promises. They had forgotten everything he remembered. And he remembered and relented according to the abundance, it says, of his steadfast love. So anytime, again, you see that word steadfast love in the Psalms, it is always a reflection 
of the covenant God made with His people. It is, a, it is His promise to do them good and to love them. And He made that promise. And clearly it was a part from how well they were doing. He said, it doesn't matter how you do, I will love you. And He pledged Himself to love them. That's His steadfast love. And so what He did is He remembered that promise and He acted according to His character because of His steadfast love. And so for Him to save them was consistent not with their good behavior. It was consistent with His character and His promise. And I'm just going to tell you, in case it hasn't been clear yet, if you are to be saved by the Lord, if you are to be reconciled to God so that He doesn't hold your sin against you, it will be because of His character and His promises, not because of your good behavior. In fact, I want you to look at His salvation here for a minute because it shouldn't surprise you that people sin, nor should it surprise you that God saves. Look at Look through here. Verse 47 is his prayer. At the very end, he gets to the very end and he says, Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So, the first thing he does is thanks and praise. He brings us back to the purpose of the psalm in verse 1. That all of this sin somehow is to point us back to God as our Savior in a way that makes us thankful and shows Him to be praiseworthy. And then he says, Save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations. I want you to see how God answered that prayer throughout the psalm. I read through it without pointing it out. But when God brought salvation to His people, which He will most certainly do. He did it when a person stepped in the middle. When somebody went between Him when He was angry and His people when they were rebellious and somehow provided them with salvation. Look at what it said in verse 23. Go back to verse 23. It says, Therefore He said He would destroy them. Okay, so he recognized they've been rebellious. But then it says, Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn his way, away his wrath from destroying them. So when God wanted to save them, he sent Moses. He sent Moses as an intercessor. And that's exactly what Moses did. Is he just essentially reasoned with God in his prayer and said, God, if, if you destroy them in the wilderness, everyone will say, you couldn't save them. Everyone will say, you're not very great because you brought your people out, but then they all perished. And he, and he reasoned with God and he prayed for the people. And his intercession rescued them. Well, then look at verse 30. Verse 30 says almost the same thing with a different person. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. 
And that was counted to him for righteousness from generation to generation. So there was one person who acted in faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he rescued the people from the plague. So when God wanted to rescue his people, he raised up a Savior, Moses, then Phineas. And now the psalmist is praying again, save us, O Lord, verse 47. What do you think he's looking for? What is he asking for? He's really asking for someone else now, isn't he? To stand in the gap. Someone to come in the middle of the rebellious people that he identifies with. He says, I confess our sin and the sin of our fathers. So he's looking for someone else to stand in the gap and be a mediator. Someone to be this go-between between God and rebellious people. He's actually asking for a Messiah to come in and rescue the people. And so as you think about that, the answer to the prayer that's prayed right here is in the person of Jesus. If you, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says this very thing. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So what First Timothy tells us is that Jesus is that mediator, that one that goes in the middle to plead with God by His blood to keep the promise that He made in the new covenant so that God's covenant faithfulness will prevail rather than judgment. In other words, for you to hope for salvation, is to hope in Jesus rather than to hope in yourself. There's a big difference between hoping you've done well enough to somehow earn favor with God and hoping in Jesus because Jesus has done well enough. And Jesus, in fact, has done everything necessary to reconcile you to God for good. So I told you to read that chapter with uh, the question in mind, did they do well enough to get along with God? Were they guilty or not guilty? So I want to just, I, I want to pull the jury here, okay? You guys can be the jury. This is innocent. This is guilty. You just read about all the charges against them there, okay? So in your mind are the People of Israel, innocent or guilty? Show me. Show of hands. Okay, I'm, the jury's unanimous, okay? Uh, unanimous enough to condemn, right? But Romans chapter 8 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. In other words, they're guilty of condemnation and God raised up Moses and Phineas 
We confess our sin. We are guilty. And God raised up a Savior, a mediator, an intercessor named Jesus. The answer to that prayer, save us, O Lord our God, is answered in the person of Jesus. That we might give thanks to His holy name and glory and His praise. They had done everything wrong. In fact, if every conceivable kind of offense is listed in this chapter. They grumbled, complained, forgot, served idols, were sexually immoral, were murderous, lacked faith, craved evil things, and I left some out. But the point of rehearsing all those bad things is to say the cross of Jesus is enough. God has provided a mediator to rescue them and to rescue us. I don't know I don't know what you came in with this morning, but my guess is if you're like me, if you're like the rest of us, we all have some things in our past that we're not very proud of. I hope there aren't very many of you who have, you know, sacrificed your sons and daughters to demons or eaten sacrifices to the dead and those kind of things. But nonetheless, even if you have, there's a mediator for you. There is a rescue even for that. And His name is Jesus. Because God's forgiveness doesn't come to you because you've done well enough or because you've gotten part of the way there and somehow Jesus gets you the rest of the way. Your only hope is that there's somebody in the middle for you to rescue you from the wrath and judgment of God which is exactly what the Bible says that Jesus has done. And after all, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You know what? You can own up to the fact that, yeah, you, had, you don't have it all together because you don't have to have it all together. And you can be certain that God will welcome you home because... Jesus has taken care of all of your offense. Psalm 106 closes the book four of the Psalms. I don't know if you noticed, but the Psalms are organized in five books, and they all end, if you have a paper Bible, it probably says the very last thing after this is book five. And so they're just, they were edited and compiled later and they put them together in themes and they put this one together to leave a lasting impression. Like if you're going to take a break, you read the first, you read book four, it's time to like put it to bed, you know, close the book, go to bed, think about what you read. This is what he wants you to think about. All of that sin is taken care of the person of Jesus. So he ends with verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's interesting, he identifies him with the God of Israel, isn't it? Because it's just Israel we've read about, not so cool. From everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And so they want to leave you with this idea. That yes, in fact, you can be confident that if you will turn and come to Jesus, 
you will be welcomed back. Because Jesus has done everything that's necessary for you to be reconciled with God. And he didn't just, you know, you got 90% of the way there and Jesus got you across the line. It's like, you can be just like these people here. In everything that needs to happen, Jesus has done. Because God saves you. He saves us. Because he is faithful to his covenant, not because we have been good. And really, that's the good news. That's when we talk about the gospel or we talk about the good news. The good news is, I don't have to hope that God grades on a curve and my grade is better than someone else's. I have to hope in Jesus alone. Because He alone has done everything as my mediator and go-between that's necessary so that God will welcome me into His family, into His presence. And because God saves us because He's faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I, I thank You that we don't need to pretend that we can admit that we have problems, that we can admit that uh, we're probably worse than we're even accused of sometimes. But Father, I praise you that you alone are good and will rescue us because you have sent another mediator whose name is Jesus. And our hope is in him. And would you grant us your grace and favor that we might continually go back and back and back in confession and repentance of our sin and in trust that Jesus' goodness counts for us rather than our own goodness, which is inadequate. So we, we thank you that we can trust Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen.